Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. So glad to look out and see all your faces here. Um, I want to, before I go into the message, I want to emphasize what Pastor Gabe said about getting the truck back. If you ever, if you were one of those who prayed for us to get the truck back, pray that God would do something, um, first of all, thank you. There's huge power in prayer, but I want to tell you Tiny little story, I'll make it as quick as I can, about how amazing and miraculous God can be when he wants to move in a way and make something happen, and our prayers are what prompts that thing to happen. Um, if you know anything about, okay, this is an old Chevy truck, 88 Chevy truck. It's got the fuel tank mounted underneath. I'm going to try not to get super technical. If you've ever done any automotive work, had to take a fuel pump out of a fuel tank or change one yourself... Okay, maybe I'm talking to a really small niche audience here, right? Uh, Ann, have you ever had to pull a fuel pump on an old Chevy pickup? Okay, okay. So I realize not all of you know, but understand this. Uh, it sits underneath the truck, and it is covered in rust, okay? You take the fuel tank out, and then you have to hammer and chisel this lock ring out that allows a porthole to open that you can take the fuel pump out of the truck, okay? All of which was absolutely coated in rust and 20 years worth of grease and grime. So Pastor Gabe said, we got it, we recovered it, we drove it to the church here, and then tried to drive it home. We made it only a couple blocks, and it just died, okay? So we towed it the rest of the way home, Pastor Gabe, huge trooper in this Subaru, towing me in the pickup truck all the way home. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's not how she envisioned that night ending, but uh, when you're with me, it can go either way. Um, but, so we get it home. I'm diagnosing it, trying to figure out what in the world happened, and it looks like it's a fuel pump problem. So, like, okay, weird coincidence, coincidence, right, that the fuel pump would just go bad right then. I pull it out, take everything out. After digging down into it, I take it out, and the electric fuel pump inside the tank is unplugged. I mean, it's unplugged. How does that happen? Okay, if you don't know anything about it, that plug, it fits in there super tight, an electrical connection inside of a fuel bath, it's going to be made positive connection, right? You don't want trouble there. So it is jammed in there, and you have to take a pair of pliers or screwdriver to pop the lock off of it and get it to come out. It's unplugged. There is no, without going further, there is no explanation other than God said, you know, I'm going to make this fuel pump come unplugged so the truck will die right where it died. They'll abandon the truck. It will be found. It was two miles from the church, just right over there, um, before they can do any serious damage, anything. And it's such a God thing. I mean, literally, I'm looking at it going, in all my years of automotive experience, I have never seen a fuel pump come unplugged. Maybe like the day after you do it because you didn't put it together right. It's got thousands of miles since anybody ever worked on that truck. And yeah, God did that. So if you wonder, can God do things like that? Oh, I know he's all spiritual, but can he reach in and unplug that fuel pump? Yes. Yes. I always say Jesus is a gearhead. Every time I'm working on my motorcycle in the I don't pray any other time than when I'm working on the engine in my, in my race motorcycle, 
And he always makes it come through. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. You knew right where that lock ring needed to go. And I didn't know, but he knew. All right. God is amazing. He works so many amazing miracles in our life. And if we take a second to look at the things that we go, oh, what a weird coincidence. And we go, no, we prayed for this. And God answered our prayer. That's God answering that prayer. That's not just a, what a fluke. We got it back may seem like a small thing, but in the kingdom, it is huge to understand that God is faithful and God answers our prayers. So um, anyway, I just wanted to touch base on that. Let's get into the message for today. We're talking about, um, we're talking about the Last Supper today. That's what this section of Scripture is all about. Um, it's just, most Bibles have it, and it just says the Last Supper, or Jesus institutes the Last Supper. That's the section of chapter 14 we're going to be talking about today. Before we get to that, though, I want to point out something from last week's message. And I kind of hinted that we talk a little bit more about it today. And it was the idea of Jesus at this moment, at that what we call the Last Supper, but at the Passover celebration that they were having, Jesus had foretold of somebody who was going to betray him. Remember that? He said, one of you right here, one of you sitting right here is going to betray me. And the disciples were incredulous about this. And they asked a question. This jumped out to me. Hopefully it struck you guys like it did me. Mark 14, 19, their response to him saying, one of you is going to betray me, was they began to be grieved and say to him one by one, surely not I. And if you remember, I pointed out that the punctuation at the end of that was a question mark. If I pointed at any one of you and said, you are going to betray me today, you would go, no way, not me. It would be a statement, right? Like, it wouldn't be, surely not me. These guys are not sure that they don't have the capacity for that kind of sin. And I think in a lot of ways, we ought to be there. When we make that definitive statement, like, I would never do that. We need to be careful when we say that. Because that, I believe, that is Satan's playground. He hears that, and that is a call to him to say, okay, let's see how steadfast you are. Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed. He knew that it was Judas, and he still offered Judas a seat at the table. That strike anybody as weird? Not in Jesus' kingdom, it's not weird. But for us in the flesh, we're like, I'm not going to offer you a seat. And I, I just asked myself, why would you do that? And it just comes down to it's the same reason that there wasn't a fence around the tree in the Garden of Eden. He wants it to be our choice. He wants us to come to him freely. He wants us to do the things we should do out of an outflow of our heart, not out of a commandment, not out of, I'm going to make a fence so that you can't do the wrong thing. We're given every opportunity to make all the bad choices we want with the hope that we won't make them, but we still do. Judas had a choice right up to the end, and he had made the decision, bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. 30, 30 pieces of silver in my pocket is better than this Whatever this eternal life or this kingdom thing that Jesus is promising, I'm not sure what that is, but I don't know how that works. I do know how silver works. So I'm going to take that right now. He made that decision. And John 13, 2 tells us the devil had already prompted 
Judas. Now think about that. The devil had already prompted Judas. So then Judas starts making plans, gets with the Pharisees, and he starts making plans to, to betray Jesus. He still had a, point, had a choice whether to follow through or not at that point. Now we move a little bit further ahead, and it's actually during that meal. Again, John's gospel, John 13, 27. <coughs> Jesus, it says, actually offers, it says, it's the one to whom I offer this bread. And he holds the bread to Judas. And then 13, 27, after this, then Satan entered into him. Think about that. Judas had a choice. He had been prompted. He had been tempted. Another word for prompted. You've been tempted. You've been encouraged. And he started the wheels in motion, started doing these things. But right up until that moment where the Messiah, his Lord and Savior, the one he had been following around, offered him that and said, here's your choice. Are you going to take it and eat of the bread? Are you not? What is your choice? And he made the conscious decision to take it. And that's when it says Satan entered into him. See, it's different. Being prompted, being tempted. We're all prompted. and tem- Who hasn't been tempted to sin in the last five minutes, <laughs> ten minutes, day? Okay. We all have our different things. But when you're tempted, do you make a conscious decision? It's one thing to make a mistake. You make a mistake. I didn't realize I was doing that. I wasn't thinking about it. When your Lord and Savior says, what you're about to do is sinful, do you choose to follow through and do it? Or are you going to stop and realize what you're doing? When we make that conscious decision, that's when it says Satan entered into him. It's a much bigger thing. And Jesus then tells us what Judas's fate was. Mark 14, 21, for the Son of Man is going away just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Of course, anybody know what Matthew's gospel says happened to Judas? He was so overcome by grief that he ended up hanging himself. That's what happens when we intentionally sin and then we realize what we've done. It can lead to death, physical death here or spiritual death. But... Thankfully, we can choose. We have that choice every day. We can either partner with that sin, we can engage in it, we can indulge it, we can encourage it in our lives, or we can repent of it and walk away. And if we repent of it and walk away, then Jesus invites us again and again and again to partake in the new covenant, the covenant that he offers. We have that choice. Every time we make the choice to repent and walk away rather than engage, we are offered that choice to partake in the new covenant. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Mark 14, we're in 22 to 31. If you have your Bibles, grab it. If you have it on your phone, whatever, if you out there in uh, cyber world, Tanzania, wherever you are, um, welcome you guys. Grab your Bibles. Now, John's gospel, just so you know, John's gospel records that Judas, after taking that bread, he runs off. He runs off into the night. So what we're left with here in the scene we're about to talk about is 11, okay? It's Jesus and 11 disciples, not the 12. Now, this is, we're going to talk about communion. We're going to talk about the Last Supper as it is. But this is a monumental moment in all 
of Christian history. It's huge, and it's more so than just Jesus saying this. Anybody have any idea what that is? What makes what's about to happen, what makes it so monumental? We go, I couldn't quite hear what you said, but we go from the old covenant, which was based on law, a celebration of remembering an ancient deliverance from bondage and sin that even in their time was at least 1,500 years ago to them. We're talking 3,500 years ago now. It goes from celebrating in Passover this old deliverance, ancient deliverance, significant but ancient, to the new covenant of Jesus Christ, which is an everyday, moment-by-moment deliverance from the bondage of sin in our lives. That freedom. We're either celebrating freedom that happened for them thousands of years ago, and then we go to now, the opportunity to celebrate the freedom that he gives us through what he did on the cross, the new covenant of Christ. This moment, sitting at the table, when he starts to talk about communion, it's that moment where it shifts from the old thing to the new thing. Now, I want to talk about communion for a minute because we celebrate communion. We, we observe it every single week, every time. And I don't ever, and I say this, I don't ever want it to become rote. But even then, sometimes... It just does, because you all know this is how we do it, and this is coming at the end. But I want to talk about the significance of it, because communion, believe it or not, celebrating the body and the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, has become a divisive thing in the church. And not just, no, I'm not saying just our church. Churches, the church body worldwide, denominations, it's become a divisive thing. Now, how many of us here and you can raise your hand or not, have a Catholic background, okay? There's a lot. And you remember the significance placed on observing communion. Um, There's a lot of differences between the Catholic church and what we would call ourselves the Protestant church. But observing the significance of communion, it should be something that we all agree on. Because Jesus said, do it. However, the way that it's done can be very, very different. Very, very different. And in the Catholic Church, they have this tradition that they call um, the real presence is one word for it. Um, And what they mean by that is that Christ, his body, his blood, are not symbolically present. They are actually present. The very real presence body and blood of Christ is what you're partaking in when you partake in communion at most Catholic churches. That's how it's been taught for, for centuries. And they teach this. Um, anybody know what, what they call the representation of the body? We would call it a wafer or bread. It's called the host. Okay? It's called the host. And they believe that through a process of they believe and they teach, um, a process called transubstantiation. Try and spell that, but throw that out at your next party. It'll make you seem super smart. Um, transubstantiation. What, the, what they teach is that the body of Christ literally, or the, the, the host, the wafer, the bread, literally becomes the body of Christ. 
at that moment that you take it. And that the, the wine or the blood of Christ literally becomes the blood of Christ. It's not a representation that it's literal. Now, I'm not here to say, hey, the, you know, that's crazy. I would, never, I would never go there. Okay, It's a different tradition. It's a different understanding. There's very well thought out scholarly teaching on why they teach that and why they believe that. Um, it's not... It's not how I and it's not how in general the Protestant church teaches that or believes that, okay? And the way I look at it is that Jesus is sitting at the supper table with them and he's instituting community, showing them how it's done. They are at a symbolic meal. It's a symbolic ceremony. They're celebrating Passover. The whole thing is symbolic. And Jesus is sitting there with them, unbroken and unbleeding, telling them about his body and blood. And this isn't the first time. This isn't the first time that he's taught them that. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But we believe that the only requirement for communion is that you affirm your faith in Christ, that he is your Lord and Savior. That's that's really it, and that you accept his sacrificial atonement on the cross for your sins. Okay, that's, that's what we believe, and that's what we require in order to partake in communion here. So, looking at what Jesus taught, Mark 14, 22, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after blessing, after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Now, if you think about it, I talked last week about the formal structure of the whole Passover meal. It was very orderly. Families all over Jerusalem, all over Judea that were celebrating Passover were doing it pretty much the exact same way. There was a very formal structure to that. When Jesus took the bread and he said this, right smack in the middle of that Passover dinner, it was a massive break from the format, from the tradition, from how they expected it to go. So this wasn't just a, I mean, the room would have been silent as he was explaining this to him. Now, note that the disciples, none of the Gospels say the disciples were freaked out when he said, this is my body and this is my blood. They weren't freaked out by it at all. And why? Because Jesus had already taught about that idea. If you remember back after he fed the 5,000, the crowds came to him again and wanted him to do it again. But Jesus taught this, John 6, 47 to 51. Let me just read. You can read all of John 6 if you want the whole account. But Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world also is my flesh. It's not the first time they heard it. Was Jesus being ambiguous there at all? I mean, we can sit here thousands of years later and go, of course, we see what he's talking about. Probably would have been a little harder concept to understand for them, but it wasn't the first time they'd heard it. And when they're sitting there at the Last Supper and they're celebrating the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover, 
combined together with that. And it's to symbolize the Israelites being delivered from captivity and from the idolatry and that whole, um, whole life of holiness that Jesus is calling them into. That was the moment where they were delivered from that. And then he goes on. So he had given them the body, Mark 14, 23. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. Now, this is your first Greek lesson for the day. You ready? That word, give thanks. When he had taken a cup and given thanks. Now, in, in our language, given thanks is just, it's just giving thanks. But that word translates in the Greek. Anybody know what the Greek word for giving thanks is? It's eucharisto. Anybody know where the word for eucharist comes from, which is another word for the Catholic communion or, the, or sometimes specifically the host? Is a Eucharist. That's what they call it. But the word, the actual definition of that word is thankful for God's good grace. So we take communion in thanks. That's what it should be. It says, do this in remembrance of me, but it's in thankful remembrance of God's good grace. That's what the word itself means. Mark 14, 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many. <coughs> Interesting to note, depending on your translation, only Luke uses the word new covenant. Anybody ever notice that when he says this is the blood of the covenant? Jesus doesn't say this is the blood of the new covenant. He said this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, the word new comes actually from prophecy. Daniel, I'm sorry, not Daniel, Jeremiah prophesied this hundreds of years earlier. And when Jesus said that, the disciples would have remembered. Because remember, being Jews, they were very well taught and understood the, the Holy Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31. Let me read to you 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And it talks about this new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again. Each one is to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoings and their sin I will no longer remember." That is the day of the new covenant, and that's what Jesus is instituting here at, uh, at communion. The old covenant passing away, still relevant, but moving into the new covenant of Jesus. And it's this moment, it's at that Passover table, at that last supper, that that transition happens. Now, Jesus wraps up this whole meal and everything with a promise. He says this, Mark 14, 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, a couple things to see there. First of all, Jesus is affirming that it is 
fruit of the vine that they're drinking, okay? Symbolic of, of his blood. Now, Jesus was also telling them that the time was here, right now, for fulfilling the prophecy in his death on the cross, but he says to them, we'll be together again. We will enjoy this together again, trying to ease, ease their hearts. Now, in the spirit of looking at these things that um, can be divisive, some people, again, use this, what's happening right now, that statement to show that the Bible is in error. What I mean by that, when he says, um, when he says that I won't enjoy it again, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Anybody know, does Jesus drink wine again between here and when he is crucified? Some people say that he did on the cross when they offer him wine. Remember, they offer him wine on a, on a sponge. Let's look at this. In, in Mark, Mark says specifically, Mark's gospel, he was offered wine and did not take it. And Mark's gospel specifically says that. Matthew says he tasted it and refused it. Okay? John's gospel then says that they touched a sponge to Jesus' lips, and the moment he tasted it, he gave up his spirit and died. Okay? So people that say, yeah, he drank it on the cross, so therefore what he said there is wrong, that is not correct if you look at it. And I just I like to take those little segues there to make sure that we all know, these are the things people will come at you with sometimes as a Christian, and they'll say, I can't believe it because here's error, here's error, this is wrong, that's wrong. So when we come across those in Scripture, I want to make sure we all at least have a basic understanding of that. Scripture is 100% inerrant in the things that it teaches, in the things that it says. All right, so moving on. That was our little segue. Mark 14, 26, and after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Remember I told you the order of the way that they, that they celebrated um, Passover here, the Passover dinner. That would have been what we called the halal that they were singing. That hymn would have been the halal, which is kind of almost towards the end of it. That's Psalm 113 to 118. Those parts of it comprise what, what is the halal, and that's what they were singing. And the halal is just a praise to God. That's what that is. When you're singing that song, go read those, read those psalms, 113 to 118. Not right now, on your own time. But read them, and it's pieces of it that are put together in just a praise to God. This is why, by the way, I believe when, when we're finished with this service, we'll take communion, and then what do we do after communion every week? There's more worship. Jesus offered them communion, offered them the bread and the blood of the new covenant, offered that to them. And when they took it, the very next thing they did is they sang songs to praise of God. So when we get done here, we're going to take communion, and I don't want you to leave. I just know life is busy. All of us are looking and going, oh, if I leave now, I have time to get here. Don't be that guy that leaves in the third quarter because you want to be the first out of the parking lot. Let's take time. Pastor Tom, like, like no other worship pastor I've ever personally known, prayerfully puts together the songs that we're going to sing both before and after 
They are prayerfully put together to bring us into a place of just praising God. And so let's stick around and let's sing those songs of praise together when we, after we take communion, okay? I'm just asking you to do that. There's significance to it. Now, finished with the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples, they head out what is probably the east gate of the walls of Jerusalem, and they head out to the Mount of Olives to rest. And Jesus teaches them a little bit more. Mark 14, 27, and Jesus said to them, this is when they're out of Jerusalem, they're up in the Mount of Olives, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Okay, that is prophecy quoted straight out of Zechariah. Zechariah 13, 7. Let me read it for you because it's interesting. Zechariah 13, 7 says, Awake, sword, against my shepherd and against my man, the associate, declares the Lord of armies. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. What you typically hear when that's quoted is just this part. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's typically what you hear. I include the whole thing in context because it's important. That word associate, does that sound like an odd word to use? That's our translation of it. The word associate in Hebrew now, because it's Zechariah, Old Testament, it's going to be in Hebrew, and that word translates as amith. And amith means my relative and my equal. That's what that means. The Lord of armies is saying, my relative and my equal will be stricken and his sheep will scattered. Mark 14, 28, but after I am raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Okay, now Isaiah and Daniel had foretold of the resurrection of the dead, had prophesied about that. Um, and Jesus had told them just very recently that he had authority. Nobody takes my life. I have authority to give it and I have authority to take it back. So he had told them all the things, but I don't think they really grasped it. Matthew's gospel, Matthew 17, 22, 23, says, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, this is a flashback to when he's explaining to them how it works. The son of man is going to be handed over to men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Okay, deeply grieved, but they didn't really get it then. And I don't think they really get it now. The reason I don't think they get it now is because in the spirit of, remember the questions, which one of us is the greatest? And can we sit at your right hand, you know, when you get your kingdom? Totally failing to see the big picture of what Jesus is telling them. In response to Jesus saying, but after I am, after I am resurrected from the dead, I'm going ahead of you to the Galilee and I'll wait for you. Peter's response, super holy, Mark 14, 29, Peter said to him, even if they fall away, yet I will not. Like, did you totally miss what I just said was about to happen? Peter's going, yeah, they, they might. They might fall away. I'm not going to fall away. Mark 14, 30, and Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. That idea of a rooster crowing twice, by the way, common, common um, way to talk about time, to measure time in that time. It was about 2 to 3 a.m. would be when the rooster would start crowing for the, for the new dawn. So they, they knew kind of when he was talking about. Mark 14, 31. But Peter repeatedly, 
I love this. Repeatedly said insistently. That's a double. Anybody, anybody here have a two-year-old who wants something? You know what repeatedly and insistently means. Okay? Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing as well. These were the same disciples who just shortly ago had to question themselves when Jesus said, somebody's going to betray me. And they're like, is it me? Surely it's not me. They're, <laughs> they're awful sure of something that they can't be sure about. Most translations use the word never, by the way. I will never deny you. And I would just add to this, be careful when you say never. You have no way to know those things. Now, okay, I'm going to wrap this up and try to make sense of it. So we have, we have this Catholic doctrine, capital C Catholic doctrine of the real presence of the body and the blood of Christ, right? Or transubstantiation doctrine. The other end of that is called the extreme symbolic interpretation. Anybody ever heard of that? Probably not, unless you're, unless you're really a Bible nerd. At one end, at one end of the spectrum, if you will, we have this dogmatic religion, okay, that says do it this way because it means this, and this is how we do it, this is when we do it, this is who can do it, this is who can't do it. And honestly, that type of extreme religion can lead to death, spiritual death I'm talking. On the other hand of the spectrum, we have what I call casual Christianity. And casual Christianity can also lead to death. Jesus says, don't be lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. We need to be vigilant about allowing either into our lives, casual Christianity or extreme dogmatic religion, because neither one of them leads to life. We need to be careful when we talk about communion. This is what we're talking about here today. This whole message is basically about communion. Yeah, it's got that aspect of Peter denying Jesus, and we'll talk more about that next week. But it's really about instituting communion, and we need to be careful when we take communion together, okay? Sometimes they call it a sacrament. When we take communion together, we need to be careful taking it with the right heart, with the right spirit, and with the right understanding of what it means. Okay, so when we get to that point, I want you to think about what it means to you and where is your heart, and is your heart prepared and in a place to accept that covenant that Christ offers. Paul wrote about the need of taking it too casually. He wrote to the church of Corinth. Now, the church of Corinth is the poster child for being out of control, okay, They were very zealous, but they added all kinds of rules and different things that they were doing, and Paul continually had to write to them to get them back in line because of some things they were doing. And he wrote to them, 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, um, he goes, is the cup of blessing which we bless not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? He's trying to tell them, look, we are all sharing. This isn't just about you individually. We are all sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. It's a corporate thing, and it matters that we're all doing it with one another for the same reason. And he wrote this then. 
a little bit later, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just one chapter later. Didn't take him any time at all. It's totally misunderstand this. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 22. They were becoming very casual about communion. Some, some scholars use the word abusing. They were um, abusing communion. Now, how do you abuse communion? Here's how they do it. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 22. Now in giving this next instruction, he's giving them a little bit of praise, saying, hey, you guys are doing good in a lot of things. But then he says, now in giving this next instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. He'd been there. He's like, "I, I can believe what I'm hearing. For there also have to be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For when you eat, each one takes his own supper first, the one who goes hungry, while another one gets drunk. They were, they were making a banquet out of the Lord's Supper. Okay, people were bringing, this is where, probably where potluck came from at a church. They were bringing their own food. One is sitting just gorging on your own food and getting drunk on the wine and saying, this is communion. And Paul's going, what? No, no. I, I, I sympathize with Paul. He gets them all set up and says, okay, you guys got this right. I'm going to leave, and I'll come back later. And then he gets feedback from all over saying, you'll never guess what they're doing. This is when he comes out and goes, I can believe it. All right, for when you eat, each one takes his own supper first, and one goes hungry while another one gets drunk. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What am I to say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I do not praise you. Okay, where was their heart when they were doing that? They knew they were supposed to. Paul had told them, do this, and here's how you do it. And they had gone completely off the rails and just said, okay, this is a chance to have lunch. We're hungry anyway, right? That's what they're doing. Uh, there's a quote that I want to share with you. I honestly don't even know where it came from. It was, it was in a commentary that I read, but it's talking about communion, and I love it. So I'm just going to read it unattributed. He has provided our holiness to make us acceptable to God. He has provided the only way to gain eternal life in heaven. And he has provided the spirit to live within us and guide our journey there. The celebration of his supper of remembrance is a holy, reverent thing. Our motive and desire should be to do this in remembrance of him. See, in the Old Testament... When you, when you took Passover meal, okay, Passover, and even today, the Jewish culture, when they take the Passover meal, they're commemorating a historical escape from Jesus, uh, from Jesus, from Egypt. Let me repeat that because it's significant. I want to get it right. We don't today, we don't celebrate communion to commemorate a historical escape from Egypt 3,500 years ago. That's not why we take communion. We take communion together 
because through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, every single day in our lives, we escape hell. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that through what Jesus did, I am set free. I am set free from the bondage of sin. I am set free from everything that enslaves me. And I am free to walk in the new life that you offer. The new life offered through the blood of Jesus Christ is mine just for accepting. So, Father, I pray that my heart is focused on you when I take communion today. I pray that my heart is aligned with yours to accept the freedom offered to me, to live in that freedom offered to me, but to understand what that freedom means. It doesn't mean anything goes. It means I have a responsibility to live like I have been set free, a life of thankfulness, a life of service to my Lord and Savior, a life of letting others know about my Lord and Savior and the freedom that he offers. That is a life that is honoring to you, and that is a life that I want to celebrate in my heart when I take communion today. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you this day and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read you one scripture as we move about and take communion. We'll have the station over here and over here. Uh, Scott and Kelly are going to serve over on this side. Pastor Gabe and myself will be over here, and we'll have wine, and we can serve it up front here. Um, at the station over there, if you don't want wine, then we have juice at that station over there, and you can take that. But when we do it, again, I want you to stick around and worship with us afterwards. Understand the significance of what we're partaking in here. And here's what Paul said, again to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now a warning, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You can move around and celebrate communion and what the Lord's doing in our lives. Thank you, guys.